It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me on the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, defending philosophy. Colin McGinn, himself a well-known philosopher, says that his field don't get no respect these days. If people think about philosophy at all, they tend to picture a lot of beard-stroking and navel-gazing and wool-gathering. A good way to pass the time, perhaps, if you've got nothing practical to do. But if you want real knowledge, the kind you can bank on, that tells you about the world as it is, well then, it is science you're looking for, not philosophy. Of course, there was a time way back when, when guys wore togas, that philosophy was king. But those days are now gone forever. After centuries of scientific progress, it's the guys with the lab coats who run the kingdom. And philosophy? Well, you see that thatched hut down there outside the castle walls with a dude walking around muttering in front of it? That is philosophy's house. Well, however close that picture may be to the popular conception, Colin McGinn says it is flat wrong. He says philosophy is itself a kind of science, quite rigorous, and still essential to understanding the world. And those other scientists, the physicists and biologists, geologists, and other ists, if they ignore philosophy, then it is to the detriment of their own disciplines. Colin McGinn has held positions at Oxford University and Rutgers. He's currently a professor of philosophy at the University of Miami. His many books include Truth by Analysis, Basic Structures of Reality, and Consciousness and Its Objects. And speaking of consciousness, uh, I wanted to mention to listeners who may have heard my interview a few weeks back with the neuroscientist Sebastian Sung, where after the interview, I raised a very sticky question about consciousness in the brain, that Colin McGinn and I are going to take up that question today. I was saving it up for a proper philosopher, and I think I found me one. Here's my conversation with Colin McGinn. How do people react to you? And I mean people outside of academia, people in your everyday life. How do they react when you tell them, I'm a philosopher? Or, or do you tell them that? Well, I often, I often try to uh, delay <laughs> the moment when I, when I tell them that I'm a philosopher. Um, because it, usually it produces misunderstanding in people. Um, if they're, you know, if they're other uh, academics, they might, uh, they might have some inkling of philosophy, but they often don't. But if it's just, you know, people who are not uh, academically inclined, um, they always get the wrong idea about what I do, and they, they assume... Somebody the other day found out I was a philosopher and said, oh, we have a lot in common. I'm a, I'm a homeopath. <laughs> so I said, I don't really do that kind of philosophy. And then she was very baffled to what I might might do. But that's a very common reaction. People think, you're, you know, you're, um, you're in the business of giving advice and uh, about the meaning of life and, you know, general attitudes about how to live. Um, and often, you know, it's, it's very unsystematic and unscientific, this, this um, the way they think of philosophy. And so uh, they're disappointed when they find that you don't do anything like that. So very often I would say to people, I've started saying to people in the last few years when, they, when I, I get into those conversations, what I do is more like a science. I'm really a scientist. Well, there's a, um, I guess I have to say, a somewhat disrespectful um, definition of philosophy, that it is the contemplation of problems that science itself has not yet solved. Mm. So there was a time historically, when science hadn't done anything and everything was philosophy, the contemplation of right. the natural world. Right. And as over the, the centuries, as science has 
successfully explained more and more, uh, philosophy is left with more fundamental and abstract questions, uh, more metaphysical questions. Yeah. Well, that's one way that people often often put it, but I think it's really a mistake, and it's just uh, it's just generated by the word philosophy. It just so happens that that word was used back in the time of the ancient Greeks to cover every branch of learning, uh, so every subject. But at that time, people were not very clear about the distinctions between different branches of learning. So Aristotle was, you know, a world expert in every branch of what we now call science but also in logic and also in metaphysics and also in ethics, as a matter of fact. So people think that, that this means that philosophy then must mean everything, the study of everything, and then the scientists have developed and left philosophy with a tiny little island of, of topics that will soon be swallowed up by some new science. This, I think, is a, is a complete misconception. I think philosophy always was a separate science from every other science. It's just that in those, back in the early days, that wasn't very clear. One thing you've done quite recently is to to advocate uh, publicly in the pages of, say, the New York Times, where you wrote a, a, an article called Philosophy by Another Name, for a rebranding of philosophy, for a name change, and you've called your campaign uh, the Campaign for Renaming Philosophy. And I, I'm noticing um, that you have an acronym that probably won't do you any favors. Yeah. <laughs> Especially it's the Campaign for Renaming Academic Philosophy is particularly yeah. the bad bad acronym. I couldn't resist it as a joke, but I, I did court the danger that people think I'm not being serious by, uh, by suggesting that, but I couldn't, I couldn't uh, turn the joke down when it occurred to me. I mean, yeah, my, my, I gave the reasons there that I think that it would be helpful to change the name. Some of them have to do with just the fact that the name is old-fashioned and misleading and obsolete, because it means originally lover of wisdom, and that's not really a good description of what philosophers do today or what they've actually ever done ever since Plato and Aristotle. Um, but also, it's, um, it's just very misleading to the general public, and it would be clearer to everybody if the subject was named in some other way. And I, I made a suggestion there, which I'm not totally thrilled with, but I, I couldn't think of a better one. I, I suggested calling philosophy ontics, because ontic is to do with being, and really the nature of philosophy is to do with the being of being or the nature of being in general. So that was my suggestion. Well, uh, all I can say is good luck with that one. Uh, it's going to be difficult to get people to, to think of it. But one possibility is that people might use both names or, or when people are confused about what you do if you're a philosopher, somebody, you could just say, well, some people have suggested maybe we should rename philosophy and call it maybe ontics because that would at least be, wouldn't baffle people as much as the name philosophy does. So we might not get rid of the name philosophy, but we would have a fallback that we could bring up and, to explain ourselves a bit cl more clearly. A, a lot of fields, not just philosophy, but a lot of fields um, which are generally classed as the humanities or the social sciences have been uh, accused of having a, a certain amount of science envy, of envying yeah. the prestige of, of science. And, of course, that prestige is also reflected in the amount of money spent on it. Right. Um, is this in part motivated by a grab for a little more, more respectability? I think it's much more just a recognition of what what philosophy is as it now exists, and, and just a, a better way to to classify it in comparison with other other disciplines. Um, my, I mean, I've sometimes been struck by the fact that the New York Times, you know, has a section on Tuesdays called the Science Times. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, I've been quoted in that talking usually about my the mind. But in general, that section of the newspaper never covers anything in philosophy at all. 
And I suspect that the editors do that because they think, well, philosophy is not a science at all, so anything that might be going on in philosophy is not relevant to us at the Science Times, which means one of the major venues for discussing these kinds of ideas is not, not available to philosophy. So it seemed to me that it would be helpful just for the point of view of, um, of coverage in the media if we philosophers advertise ourselves a bit more as what we really are, which is we're a science, and so we ought to be covered in those publications. It's to do with, it's a public relations question. It's, it's trying to make philosophy something that people are aware of and value uh, in general. I mean, I'm, I think that one of our contemporary ills intellectually is that, is that people don't know anything about philosophy anymore, and they don't read about it, and it's very invisible to the average person. Well, let's then talk about how philosophy is and isn't like what we call science. I think most people would maybe make a distinction, something like this, Th those who know what philosophy is at all. A scientist typically looks at the outer world, collecting a lot of data, and then tries to make sense of that data. A philosopher sits in his or her office, even with his or her eyes closed, and thinks about things. Mm. Isn't that a fair description of sort of the yeah, common view? Absolutely fair. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite <laughs> accurate. I mean, it, it's it's true that a scientist, as I think most people understand the word today, without thinking about it much, does investigate the world through the senses. But there are two points about that. One is that that doesn't include what are called the formal sciences, like mathematics and logic, uh, set theory, uh, games theory, and various other disciplines. Because in those subjects, too, the, uh, the scientist, the formal scientist, uh, closes his or her eyes and thinks about things. They don't go out investigating the world through their senses. So if we want to include the formal sciences, like mathematics, as a science, we need to have a broader conception of science than, than, than the one that you just outlined. Secondly, in the case of psychology, um, one of the approaches in psychology has been, and actually still is, the introspective approach, which is you try to gain information about the mind by introspecting the mind. So then, of course, you're using an inner sense, as it's sometimes called, not an outer sense, because you're trying to investigate an inner phenomenon, namely consciousness and various aspects of consciousness. So if we were to define science in a very exclusive way to include only the use of the outer senses, then we would not be allowed to count uh, introspectionist psychology as a science either. Mm. You raise a, a good point about mathematics, uh and logic, too, there's a long-running argument that mathematics itself doesn't really belong with the other sciences because it isn't empirical. It doesn't involve observation of the natural world. It, it's based on pure reasoning. Yeah. Um, is it somehow different from the other sciences in that way? Yeah, it's fundamentally different. Um, it's, it's a, it, traditionally, it's described by philosophers as an a priori subject, usually also described as discovering necessary truths, sometimes analytic truths, um, whereas the sciences are a posteriori empirical subjects, meaning that they are conducted by using the senses. Whether that means we should withhold the term science from what have traditionally been called the formal sciences is another question. I, I don't really see any good reason to do that. It certainly goes against all of the historical use of the word science. So, uh, you know, Gauss, the mathematician, described mathematics as the queen of the sciences. Mm. Well, that would have to be a complete mistake on his part to say that. <laughs> um, and it's not. It's, uh, it's perfectly apt. Science, we can't use the word science just to mean empirical science. And you can tell that it doesn't mean that. Otherwise, empirical science would be a, a, a pleonasm. It would be redundant. But it's not. It's, it, the idea of science really is the idea of a systematically organized 
body of knowledge, usually involving generalizations, often predictions, rigorous, and so forth. That's really the idea of a science. And traditionally, that's how the word is used. That's why it's used to include the formal sciences as well as the natural sciences. Uh, my point is just to say, if we're going to use the word science to include the formal sciences, there's no good reason to not use it in application to uh, to philosophy as a science. Uh, and, and by the way, you are the uh, the first person ever to use the word pleonasm on my show. So <laughs> congratulations, it's about time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the second point here is, suppose we were to agree with uh, this very restrictive use of the word science, so we only apply it to what are called the natural sciences, physics, chemistry, and biology. We might then say, but well, let's introduce a new word. Let's call it schmeience. <laughs> and schmeience applies to disciplines which have the same degree of rigor, the same uh, ability to ge deliver generalizations as science, but it isn't empirical. And now we'll say that mathematics is a schmeience, and so philosophy is also a schmeience. That we, then we're essentially in the same situation we're in now. The point is, in, in, my point is, the, the way the word science is used, it's, it's not good to use it in that very restricted way because then it makes it sound as if everything else is lacking in the kind of epistemic virtue that science has, rigor, generality, and so on. And so if you're trying to capture the deeper similarities between different disciplines, I think the word science should be used in the broader way. You raised another point, aside from whether or not a field of knowledge is based on observation, that yeah. is, whether it's empirical, and that is just how rigorous and systematic it is. Right. Now, science, again, the popular image is that it is extremely rigorous to the point where knowledge is cumulative, mm. and from year to year and century to century, it gets better and more accurate, and we can actually essentially scrap a lot of the old stuff and, yeah. and stick with the new. Now, when I think of philosophy, I think of Plato and Aristotle in some ways as relevant today as they were, you know, centuries ago, yeah. uh, millennia ago. And I think of um, someone more contemporary, let's say, oh, name someone from the 20th century, Wittgenstein. Yeah. Is Wittgenstein an advance over Plato in the way that Einstein was an advance over, let's say, Archimedes? Um Really hard to, no. to make that argument, yeah? Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's quite true that, that science makes advances in the way that philosophy doesn't, I mean, at least in a very broad way. The picture is perhaps not as stark as it, as it may seem to people sometimes. Um, if you're considering foundational questions in science, um, those questions are a bit more like philosophical questions, and they don't seem to get settled quite so easily. So there was a big debate in the 17th century about what's called mechanism, and some people felt, the Cartesians who were mechanists, felt that Newton had violated mechanism because of action at a distance in gravity. Uh, and so there was a, a very broad debate about, about mechanism and whether that should be the basis of all physical theories, and the ether was brought in for those reasons. Um, and that debate was one where, you know, that went on for centuries and was not resolved by any particular discovery. That was a conceptualization of the, the basic form of the theories. Um, it, equally, on the other side, you know, Aristotle had a logic, um, syllogistic logic, which was very successful uh, in its own way, but it was superseded by the logic developed by Frege and Russell in the 20th century, and now everybody would agree that the new logic is superior to the old. So there's the same kind of advance mm -hmm. over the old logic mm -hmm. there. Equally, you know, people, I think, often underestimate how much philosophy has discovered um, there's not just, I mean, there are the very broad questions of philosophy, like the mind-body problem, the free will problem, knowledge of the external world, and, and so forth. But there are much more particular 
questions that get discussed in philosophy where real advances have been made, especially in the way of making distinctions which people have overlooked for a long time and that it's easy to overlook. Um, so if you're studying philosophy, there's a quite a lot of substantial material you have to learn, which are the essential tools of the philosophical trade. And those are real discoveries that the philosophers have made. They don't resolve the deeper questions that, as you say, were raised by Plato and Aristotle. Um, it's not so clear that really that science is resolving some of the deeper questions either. I mean, physics hasn't resolved the question of the origin of the universe, not really because of the question, how did the Big Bang originate? Biology hasn't solved the problem of the origin of life because we still don't know how life actually originated. We know that natural selection was the mechanism that produced life that we ha as we have it now. So there are still very large unresolved problems, even in the, the most successful sciences. So I think this, this, this picture, uh, though true, basically, of, of the progress in one and relative lack of progress in another, is perhaps not quite as, as simple as people sometimes think. Well, there are some questions that you and I could probably agree that science has a good chance of solving um, if they get the right information. Some, mm. some of this information is lost to us because it happened so long ago because the yeah. events in question, the origin of the universe, right. the origin of life on Earth. But there's no reason in principle why science could not come up with a very good explanation for the origin of life if they can reconstruct in the lab a right. set of processes that are plausible right. um, and see a living organism uh, spring from from uh, dead materials, you know, chemicals yeah. and things. Then they'd have they'd have a pretty good case. But but there are some things I wonder whether science could ever possibly even address, and, and those tend to be the fundamental things. Uh, mm, wh wh why do some things exist and other things don't exist? All the classic almost. Yeah grade school philosophical questions yeah, exactly. that are forever up up for grabs and yeah. that, that we're, we're constantly debating, which is yeah. why I think, well, philosophy doesn't progress because philosophy addresses things that are so fundamental that, that perhaps there is no way to settle them once and for all. Well, that, that, seems, that seems a very reasonable assessment. I mean, these, these are problems which science will not solve. Now, some, some people think in a very positivist spirit, if science cannot in principle solve a certain question, the question must be a pseudo-question must be a form of nonsense. That's the positivist position. It's held by many scientists even today. That view is palpably uh, false. There are many clearly meaningful questions which science can't resolve. Um, so what do we do about those questions? Well, we could say, well, since we can never resolve them by science and, and philosophy doesn't seem to be able to resolve them itself, let's not ask them anymore. Let's just let, let, let them go away and just never consider them. That's just turning your back completely on real questions of, of profound significance. So that doesn't seem a good suggestion at all. What philosophy has really managed to do is articulate the questions, clarify the alternatives, lay out the strengths and weaknesses of various positions, and sometimes, in fact, make one position more reasonable than another. The, the basic point here is, you know, just because a question is not something you can resolve in the lab doesn't mean it's not a real question that's not worth thinking about. It just means that it's difficult. That's really all, the, all it comes down to. <laughs> well, let's discuss the distinction that I think is implicit in some of this discussion between information that's delivered to us through our senses, mm. and that is considered typically the domain of science, yep. and information that is delivered to us through what I, I think I earlier called pure reasoning or thought. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now, ideas and the world of ideas seem to have an existence. They seem to have a life out there. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a history. Um, they clearly occupy a lot of our existence. Do ideas exist in the same way that physical objects exist? 
Now, well, now you're asking a real philosophical question. I know, I know, <laughs> and, a, and a difficult and a difficult one. And there were different. There have been different positions on it, and so it really goes back to uh, Aristotle and Plato. So Plato took the view that universe, what he called universals, uh, like the like the uh, universal be, being good, or even the universal being red. These were entities um, which were unique in, in, in nature in being distinct from what are called particulars, in, things which actually have those things as properties, those universals as properties. So um, uh, Plato adopted what's called a realist view about universals, that they really do exist objectively, independently of the world of empirical particular phenomena. Aristotle, by contrast, took the view that uh, universals uh, think inhere essentially in particulars and don't have an existence prior to them or independently of them. And that, that type of that opposition between Platonism and Aristotelianism runs out throughout the history of philosophy. So you'll find some people who think that ideas or concepts, as they're often called concepts, sometimes meanings, some people take a Platonist view that they have objective existence. Some people take a psychologistic view that they exist in people's minds at particular times and places. And some people take a, a more nominalist view that they're just words in, of language. But whichever view you take, of course, they exist. It's just the question of what kind of thing are they? Are they abstract? Are they psychological? Or are they linguistic? Um, but they exist. So one of the things in the world which we can investigate are ideas. We can also investigate the things perceived by our senses. But since ideas do exist, we can investigate them. And that's one of the things that philosophy does, investigates ideas. You know, when I, I think I first read of Plato's notion when I was young, yeah. I thought it was complete balderdash, yeah. uh, the idea that ideals, that, you know, some kind of perfect concept yeah. existed out there. No, of course, it's a figment. It's something yeah. that's only in my head. But as I've gotten older and, and talked to more scientists and more uh, thinkers uh, and considered it more deeply, I, I mean, it's really hard to dismiss what he says. Very. And I was uh, interviewing the um, physicist and mathematician Roger Penrose. You, you may know him. I or do, know yeah. him. Uh, and he's a Platonist. I mean, he deals yes, he with is. ideas all the time, and he really does say that this is a real problem. They must exist. Uh, if they don't exist, then a lot of what science is based on makes no sense at all. Mm. That was also, that view was held by Kurt Gödel, a very famous mathematician and logician, also Gottlob Frege held that view. Many mathematicians have uh, philosophically inclined have held that, that view. It was probably largely inspired originally in Plato by the history of Greek geometry, and in, that, in some ways the strongest case for it, because geometry is investigating these um, geometric forms, spatial forms like you know circles, squares, spheres, and so on. And you can put up a very good case that those things are not words and they're not ideas in people's minds. They are something like platonic forms, the form of a triangle. And geometry is trying to give you the essential nature of those forms. So, yeah, the issue is very much alive. And, um, and it, as I say, it's, it's, the Platonist view has been held by many distinguished uh, scientists and mathematicians. And yet there is this um, position, let's call it the empiricist position, that says, you know, what's given to us through our senses is somehow more, much more reliable yeah. than the kind of thought we perform by ourselves. Yeah. And one reason it's more reliable is that we can all agree on it. We can all look yeah. and say, yes, the sun is in the sky, mm. and it goes down at night, and it comes up in the morning. And it, it strikes me that what we're talking about there is really a definition of truth as, as being consensual, as being one that involves many minds together. And in that case... Uh, empirical evidence is a lot more useful. <laughs> it's just more practical. Yeah. 
Well, that's the that's the empiricist um, point of view. And uh, within the history of philosophy, there's this there's always been this grand opposition between the rationalists and the empiricists. So in the 17th century, the rationalists, were Descartes and Leibniz, were the main ones. And then you've, on the empiricist side, you've got Locke and Hume. Uh, and it's a very deep issue between them. But one of the point, the point that the rationalists made is that in the case of empirical knowledge, it's very unreliable. You, you're subject to hallucinations and illusions, uh, and you can make mistakes, and that kind of knowledge never attains to certainty, and Descartes was very concerned about that, that issue. Whereas, by contrast, if you consider mathematical knowledge, that seems to deliver certainty also into subjective agreement, because nobody disagrees about basic arithmetic, for example. Mm-hmm. Mathematicians are not disagreeing among themselves about the truths of mathematics. And they're certain, and they're completely transparent to the mind, and they're not subject to these kind of, to the defects of the senses. So I think we need to respect that point of view as well. And um, I, I myself think that rationalism has got a lot to be said for it. I mean, the right thing to say is that some kinds of knowledge are empirically based, and some are not and we shouldn't really favor one kind over the other. The rationalists were inclined to think that empirical knowledge was defective, and the empiricists were inclined to think that rational knowledge was defective. But they both can be defective, but they can also be non-defective. <laughs> I, I think maybe uh, you know, some, some forms of um, conceptual knowledge, the kind of uh, introspection that you talked about earlier, yeah. when we study our own minds, yeah. I think that's treated a bit like hearsay, like I'm going to tell you what I'm observing of myself, but obviously you can't verify that in any way whatsoever, whereas if I make a claim about uh, the planets or about the chemical composition of soil, you can go out and verify that. Well, you can you can verify it introspectively, but you can also verify first-person statements introspectively too. For instance, suppose I say to you I'm interested in investigating the concept of knowledge, and you say, okay, I understand what you mean when you talk about knowledge. And I say, so when I think about knowledge, it seems to me that you can't know a thing which is false. And, you know, if you think about that for a moment, you'll see that that is so. You can't know what's false. You can believe what's false. You can't know what's false. So I say this to somebody, so I've thought about my concept of knowledge, and I, I think that you can't know what's false. What do you think? And I guarantee you'll say to me, I agree with you. <laughs> you can't know what's false. Why? Because you share with me the same concept that I have. That's how we talk to each other, and that's, we've acquired these concepts, and it's a big question how we do it, but we have them. And you can then communicate with other people about concepts, and you can ask them how they understand their own concepts, and you find an enormous amount of agreement between them. Similarly with, with ethics. I mean, people underestimate. People nowadays are very subjectivist about ethics, and they think, oh, it's full of disagreement. But actually, it's not. There is always basic agreement on ethical positions. You know, if you talk to anybody, you'll say, I've been thinking about ethics and it seems to me pretty obvious that pain is a bad thing. What do you think? You don't find anybody who says, oh, I don't have that feeling. I, I think pain is very nice. Uh-huh. Nobody says that. So everybody agrees that you should not produce pain in other people unnecess- unnecessarily. Everybody agrees with that. Everybody basically agrees that freedom is a value and so on. So there's this scientism out there that the only form of worthwhile knowledge has to be based on the senses, and therefore somehow science is the paradigm of knowledge. But really, it just results from not paying attention to the other forms of knowledge. What can we say, though, about this seemingly rigid difference? In some way, we grasp it intuitively that there's something utterly uh, dissimilar between that world of knowledge that comes to us through our eyes and ears and and other senses and the knowledge that we gain by by simply thinking or by examining ourselves internally. Right. 
Well, one point to notice here is, you see, when you say the knowledge which comes to us through our senses, it was a point made by Immanuel Kant that actually there's always a conceptual background to that, that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's always structured by the mind in some way. So let's take the case of, of physics, which you know, always among most favorable to this, this kind of point of view. Actually, physics won't, would not exist and have the form that it does were it not for two kinds of non-empirical knowledge. One kind is the considering the nature of truth and evidence. And so it was by thinking about how you acquire knowledge about the external world that physics came to exist. In other words, it was that you have to use your senses and not consult the Bible, for example, to find out how the world works, not consult authority. But that, that position itself is a philosophical position about how you find out, how you get real knowledge of external reality. Mm-hmm. You use the senses. That's why it was greeted historically as a big revelation. It was a philosopher who came up with that. It's not that that's not a result of physics. That's a, that's a precondition of doing physics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Secondly, of course, physics only works because of mathematics. Mathematics is not arrived at empirically. It's, a, it's something arrived at a priori. So the success of physics, even as an empirical science, depends on two non-empirical forms of knowledge. And it's the same with many other cases. Take, take basic logic. In any subject you do whatsoever, you have to use basic logic. So things like the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, and so on. Those are not arrived at by science. They're preconditions of doing science. Without those laws of logic, you can't reason validly about anything, empirical or non-empirical. So there's a huge background of a priori, non-empirical knowledge, even behind the most empirical knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I'm going to put this badly, but I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, take a risk. Um, I interview a lot of theoretical physicists. Mm-hmm. And one thing that strikes me, uh, I don't bring this up with them a lot, but uh, I sense that the field, of course, aspires to produce knowledge that transcends humanity, that really depends in no way upon the merely human. And yet it is um, run through with concepts that really originate in human experience. So, for instance, a lot of uh, leading-edge physicists these days are saying, you know, there may be no reality to time, Mm. at all uh, mm. in the physical world, and yet we have to explain this. Well, the reason there's even a, um, this is my assertion, the reason there's even a, a, a desire to explain it is that we experience it. Yes. Uh, and so the human experience of time is this fundamental problem for physics. If physics were truly superhuman, I don't know whether we'd ever even raise the question. Well, there's the question, of course, of, of uh, what are the conditions for raising the questions, and then there's the question of what's the content of the theories that get developed. Yes. I think that physics aspires to be objective, that is, independent of the human viewpoint, but, of course, it must begin from the human viewpoint. There's no other viewpoint that we can begin from. So we use our senses to acquire knowledge about the physical world, but our senses are attributes of us, and the content of the theories is meant to transcend our actual senses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it does, I think, succeed in doing that, but only with great effort. It's taken a long time for physics to become more and more objective. Maybe the, the relevant notion is more or less objective rather than totally objective. But it, it is objective. I think a mistake that people often have, mistake that often make, though, is that they think only physics is, can attain that kind of status. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think that philosophy can attain that kind of status, too. Uh, I even think that psychology can. I think that I think that all knowledge is objective in, <laughs> in the relevant sense, unless it's unless it's knowledge about our own human viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be about that. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to acquire knowledge of of the external world and reality, independent of humans, 
then it will share in at least what physics aspires to, biology and so on, does do that. So, I, you know, I think that um, it's true that um, we have to begin any uh, inquiry from the human viewpoint. And it's true also that physics can get beyond that viewpoint, but so also can almost every other subject get beyond it. So again, there's nothing really to distinguish physics as somehow the shining ideal and everything else is pitiful in comparison. I think that's a complete mistake. But if if objectivity were to mean somehow, again, transcending, leaving behind sort of human constraints, I'm not sure any of our thought could do that. Here's something I run up against as well. When it's true that physics and other sciences could produce a body of data, you know, sort of just bland, essentially meaningless data. But as soon as you extract a meaning, a value from that, mm. you're entering, again, I think a world of, of judgment, of uh, a value judgment. So when I'm talking to a physicist, well, what does that really mean to you? Well, it means it's really big. It means it's really long. And, and as soon as you start talking that way, you're, you're almost talking about human experience again. What's big? What's long? Those are... Those are relative judgments. Yeah, right? I don't think physicists should be using a concept like big and long. Well, no, no, but I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not doing them justice by saying that. Yeah. But I'm saying that what does it really mean to you? Evokes an answer that c- brings it back to human scale in some way. Well, you see, that one philosophical point of view is the one that you're you're sketching there, which is that it isn't possible for any knowledge to fully escape human subjectivity. Right, and it's, a, and it's a perfectly defensible point of view. I mean, it's been held by people. But another another position is that that knowledge can, at least to some degree, escape human subjectivity, and then some people think it can completely escape it. So a good way to think about the question is, if you were to compare uh, human physics with Martian physics, so you come across the Martians who've got their physicists, and suppose they're quite different from us in the senses that they have and, and so forth, you might well find that they completely converge with us, though, on the physical theories that they've come up with. Mm-hmm. And that would be evidence that you had indeed attained real objectivity in your theory. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's reasonable to think that, that knowledge is objective in that way. I mean, the way to think about it is there really are objective facts about the universe. Um, it, it does exist in, independently of us. And it's possible for us to form representations of those facts. And if we do do that, then we are reflecting the objective nature of the universe. Mm-hmm. I'm somebody who thinks that you can obtain this kind of knowledge. My point is just that let's not let's not say that philosophy is unable to do it, and only physics can do it. Well, let's tackle a different uh, area of inquiry: consciousness, which you yeah. talked about. This is something that I think traditionally belonged uh, to the philosophers, uh, yeah. and has lately, I would say, in the last you know in the last century. Uh, become an area that more and more scientists feel they can take on and explain. I've had done a few interviews about this subject as well with uh, neuroscientists. Uh, do you think science, as it's presently formulated, is equipped really to explain consciousness? And, and I'd also love to hear you explain to me what they even mean by explaining consciousness. Well, that's one of the questions, um, and it's a philosophical question. What does it mean to explain consciousness? And there's a lot of confusion in the debate about this. I think that there's no real problem in scientists discovering the correlates in the brain of various conscious phenomena. In fact, they have made many discoveries along those lines. And those discoveries have been made not just recently, but uh, going back to at least the 19th century. Well, I would say that, I would say that uh, 
we've known some of them all along. We know yeah. that if you hit someone hard enough right. on the head right. and, and, and disable the brain, that the person will be rendered unconscious. Exactly. <laughs> we have known them all along. We know about brain injuries, and then, then you know, as medicine developed, people dis- discovered how specific brain injuries will affect specific mental functions. And that, that branch of knowledge has continued to grow, and there's, there's no reason why it shouldn't grow into the future. So in that sense of explaining consciousness, yes, it can be explained. But there's another question, which is the question of can you explain, for example, how the brain consisting of neurons and so on can be the origin of consciousness, can be the basis of it. That's the question which I think um, there's no reason to think that science can explain consciousness in that sense. But let me, let me give you a, a, an analogy to, uh, so you can see what I mean by this. It's well known that if you put a electrical recording devices near a person's scalp, you will detect electrical waves, brain waves, as they're always called. And so you can investigate what, and in certain psychological states, that certain brain waves will develop. So scientists discovered, going back a long time, that there's an electrical field surrounding the brain. Interesting question, right? interesting discovery. How can we explain this? Well, it turns out that it's not too difficult to explain. When you look into a person's brain, you find that at the micro level, the neurons are like electrical conductors, and their electrical impulses travel down neurons. And then when huge ensembles of these uh, neural uh, electrical impulses are brought together, then you get these large-scale brain waves, and so you find there's an electrical field around a person's head. Fine, you know, that's perfectly intelligible. But compare that with the case of consciousness. So we know there's a consciousness field about a person's head. We know that we have consciousness. But now we say, can we explain that in terms of the microstructure of the brain or anything else about the brain? So we look into the brain, but lo and behold, we don't find (laughs) the little bits of consciousness detectable by our microscopes and our recording devices, the combination of which produce consciousness. So it's completely unlike the case of electricity. But, But people think that it must be like that. But that raises a very difficult question. It seems like almost a category mistake to be trying to find consciousness inside the brain by looking at the brain and by dissecting the brain. You just don't find it there. You find electrical activity there, but you don't find consciousness. So that really poses a very deep uh, problem of how you would possibly discover properties of the brain from which consciousness might arise in an an intelligible scientific way. You know, I I had a conversation with Daniel Dennett, who I I imagine you know as well, uh, another philosopher or ontic scientist. Yeah. uh, yeah. who has spent a lot of time uh, formulating theories of consciousness, and said, well, how would you investigate it scientifically? Because he believes it can be investigated yeah. scientifically. He said, well, well, I'll just have a subject sit there, and we will you know, use whatever um, uh, tools we have for observing brain function, and the subject will report to us yeah. what he is experiencing, and we'll look at the things that happen in the brain. We'll gradually work out how it's all put together. Right. Uh, but I, I felt like... Well, there is a category error there. The mm-hmm. empirical observation, I mean, if science privileges empirical observation, that is the stuff that's coming through the instruments, the stuff that's being observed, right? Yeah. But then it has to fall back on this first-person account of what's going on inside his mind. Right. Isn't it fudging there? Isn't it breaking its own rules? Well, it's, if you were interested only in discovering correlations between states of mind and, and what's going on in the brain, it would be a reasonable procedure. And that's the procedure that's been followed by, by people. You, you stimulate the brain with an electrode and you say, so what do you feel now? What do you experience now? And that way you can localize function a bit and you can find uh, correlates. Um, I think there's nothing, no methodological problem 
of a deep kind with in that. Of course, people can make mistakes about their their own first person judgments, but it's not it's not something in principle impossible. But that it would not help you at all, though, with the question of how it is that those brain events that you observe can be or can give rise to those introspectable conscious events. The problem really is is, is simply that it's not possible to reduce consciousness to brain brain states as they're now understood. There's no reduction of, of one to the other. And if there's no reduction, then there's, there's what's called an explanatory gap. That is, you can't really explain the existence of consciousness in terms of the brain because you can't reduce consciousness to the brain. <laughs> um, it doesn't mean you can't investigate consciousness. And people often describe my view as, I, I think, that science can't investigate consciousness. That's not my position. Science can. I, what I think is it can't provide the materials for explaining the existence of consciousness on the basis of the brain. Aha. Uh-huh. So suppose uh, scientists were able to do what I'm, I'm sure some would love to do, which is to, piece by piece, reconstruct those uh, uh, elements that are required to engender uh, a conscious subject. So they, they actually, you know, let's imagine a science fiction scenario where they understand the neural networks well enough that they can reconstruct the network, and at some point, boom, it starts exhibiting the uh, qualities of right. consciousness. Right. Uh, but again, I, uh, even in saying that, I don't trust what I'm saying, because, I mean, what does it mean to exhibit you know, the characteristics of consciousness. It means to behave in a certain way, but behavior alone, well, it could be a robot, right? Exactly. You definitely don't want to go down the route which was traveled in the early 20th century of becoming a behaviorist, where you just try to say there's nothing more to the mind than behavior. Um, that, that view dominated psychology um, for a long time and, was, is, and thankfully is, is now past us. Um, but you still find remnants of it. Uh, so people adopt, like Dennett, adopt basically a behaviorist view about the mind, and then they don't see any very deep problem about explaining the <laughs> mind in terms of the body. Because after all, it's no difficulty explaining how people behave as a result of their brain states. That's, that's not difficult. The, the, the behavior is just effects of brain states. It's perfectly physical. But the difficulty comes if you accept the full reality of consciousness, and then you're trying to explain how that very peculiar reality could possibly arise from the physical events going on in the brain. So behavior wouldn't be, behaviorism is tempting, but it's just an avoidance of the problem rather than a solution to it. Yeah, and and, and again, I I feel like if I could um, perform the operation I just described where uh, maybe you construct a brain, neuron by neuron, Mm. and sooner or later, um, the owner of that brain starts behaving in such a way that we say, well, he's just like us. Uh, It must be conscious. Well, then we're, we're falling back on a kind of Belief in consciousness uh, and nothing more. You know that yeah. well when it looks like a, a duck and it quacks yeah. like a duck. Well, it must be a duck. Yeah. Well, the right thing to say would be, if if you did manage to create somebody behaving just like you from silicon chips and so on, you might even say they might be conscious. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> they might be. They might not. If you equated consciousness with behavior, then they would be. But that's a mistake. But what other way would there be for the scientist looking at this animated being uh, to say it's conscious? There's no, there is no other way, just as there's no way for me to judge that you're conscious or my wife is conscious either. <laughs> that's the problem of other minds. You need, it's an inference from behavior. And it, like all these inferences, it's vulnerable to skepticism. You could say, well, if my wife behaves like me, she might be a zombie. And since it's logically possible, apparently, to behave exactly like a a person with consciousness and not have consciousness, that epistemological problem is not going to be solved. So if you're asking, you know, what's the, what's the reasonable judgment to make about 
this behaving organism, the reasonable thing to say would be, well, since they might may be conscious, we'd better treat them as if they are, mainly for ethical reasons. <laughs> but that, is, of course, is a far cry from saying that, that what consciousness is, is behaving in that way. It's just to say that the behavior is evidence for consciousness, but the evidence is fallible. It strikes me that one of the problems with the, the way the problem of other minds is normally stated is that it seems to assume that we know for sure that we are conscious, and we only infer that yeah. other people are. Right. I mean, you know, like Descartes, I think, yeah. therefore I am. But but do we know that we're conscious before we know other people are conscious? Or maybe maybe our awareness of consciousness is something that does not reside solely in ourself. Well, I think Descartes is basically right about, on this subject. I think that we do know that we have experience. The word consciousness can be interpreted in many different ways, and so you might find a sense in which we don't know that we're conscious in some senses of that word. But if you ask, for example, do I know that I'm now thinking or having experience of a red, a red thing in front of me? I think Descartes is right about that, that I do know that I have those kinds of experiences. And there's an asymmetry between my knowledge of that fact and your knowledge of that fact. You don't know in the same way that I do. I know with certainty. You don't know with certainty that I have that experience. So I don't, I don't think there's anything misguided in the way the tr traditional problem of other minds is, is, is formulated. I, I think it starts from a perfectly sound uh, beginning. Well, you know, I, I know that what I said probably sounded silly. I just want to make sure that I fully explain myself. I'm just thinking that the, the way that we come to understand our own mind is in some ways mediated by knowledge that we've yeah. gotten collectively from other people, so that it's not oh, this true. pure islanded existence that... That, that exists before we understand anybody else, that, uh, that uh, you know, deep uh, understanding of ourselves is it, itself delivered to us from, uh, by other people in some ways. Well, it would be. I mean, for example, I suppose you took seriously Freudian uh, theories about the mind, and you, you believe those, and not that I do, but suppose you did, suppose they were actually true. Uh, then, of course, you would be understanding yourself, understanding your own mind, the workings of your own mind, via a theory developed by somebody else. You'd say, oh, now I know why I had this dream. Now I know why I've got this neurotic symptom. Now I know where there was that slip of the tongue and why I find jokes funny and, and so forth. So that would definitely be a case of using third-person information mm -hmm. to, do, mm -hmm. to explain one's own, the workings of one's own mind. So in any psychological theory, I think, would, it's like that. It's just that in the point that Descartes and others have made is simply that I have a certain kind of direct access to my own current state of consciousness, which I don't have to your current state of consciousness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I would love to get to a question that was raised in a previous interview I did with a neuroscientist, mm. um, in which we were talking about the, the current state of evidence about uh, the location and maybe composition uh, or, or storage of memories in the brain, mm. uh, the way in which the, the brain might encode ideas and things like that. And he told me about a... Um, I guess now famous result in uh, brain studies using a brain scan as they, they often do these days while exposing people to various sort of visual stimuli. Yeah. They found, I think it, it, at least one subject, maybe many, uh, a particular neuron, one neuron that got active when they showed a photograph of the actress Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> and they showed this person, and they, they jokingly dubbed it the Jennifer Aniston neuron. neuron yeah. Now, now the, the, the person I was interviewing said, of course, let's be careful here. We didn't show them pictures of every possible human face, so we don't know if it corresponds only to Jennifer mm. Aniston, mm. but it does seem to correspond to a, a subset of human faces, at, mm. at, at least. Mm -hmm. And yeah. at the end of my show, after the interview was done, I said to my listeners, you know, we, we completely sidestepped the big question, 
which is the oldest and most stubborn one, I think, in, in these kinds of um, conversations, which is, okay, suppose that Neuron did encode the face of Jennifer Aniston. Aniston. Exactly whom is it representing Jennifer Aniston to? Who in the brain is looking at it and saying, ah, Jennifer Aniston? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, and you know that problem very well. Well, this is usually called the homuncular fallacy. Yes. You're trying to explain some mental function that somebody has, and you postulate a part of the brain which does things like detect the face of Jennifer Aniston. And you're attributing to a single neuron, in this case, a property which belongs to the whole person, the whole organism. And then the question that is going to arise, aren't you just presupposing everything you were trying to explain when you do that? <laughs> The, the data really are just that that neuron is firing when that face is pre presented. It's an interpretation of that to say things like that neuron is processing the information that she is there or that neuron is detecting her as if the neuron is like a person, you see, like a, an homunculus. I think neuroscience is very prone to these homuncular fallacies, and it's not at all clear that, that a lot of the theories escape these fallacies, and so they don't have the explanatory force that they're, that they're supposed to have. In fact, if you just read an ordinary textbook of neuroscience, I mean, not, not, nothing you know, um, popular or philosophical, they just immediately start talking about neurons as processing information and sending signals. That is quite homuncular talk at the very beginning, as if neurons are like people in the sense that they send out signals and receive information. I think that's extremely dubious. I think that what's happening is that neurons certainly have neurochemical properties and they respond to other neurons, but... Once you start talking in this in information theory kinds of terms, you're verging on the, uh, the homuncular fallacy, and you need to better formulate the theories without reliance on those terms. Because anybody can see that they can't be taken literally. It's not that a neuron itself is a little form of consciousness sending out signals as if it's an agent. That can't be so. So I think that neuroscience has to be very careful about these homuncular fallacies. You know, I, I thought of a better way of, of explaining what I mm. really, really ham-handedly uh, tried to, to say earlier, and you've said it quite well yourself, but if we were to look at the internals of a computer and see um, the, uh, the electrical current racing yeah. around those circuits, yeah. uh, it would be a real mistake to say, oh, that electrical current represents uh, the image that I'm about to see, whether it's a a video image or a text in a word processor, but it doesn't actually represent those things until it's displayed on a screen, and I interpret it as such. In other words, it doesn't mean a damn thing until it means something to me. Very well put. <laughs> <laughs> Very well put. And I think people will understand what you're saying when you say that. <laughs> Even to call a computer a computer is already getting in dangerous territories. As people often pointed out, the word computer was originally used for people who were performing computational problems. They were called computers. That's right, yes. <laughs> now we call these devices computers. But whether computers compute is very debatable. I don't think they do compute, if that means they contain information or meanings or they perform actions, any of these mentalistic notions. What's true is that there are inside computers, there are these circuits which have electrical impulses running through them. But to call that computation is a case of an homuncular fallacy. If you think it's as if the circuit is making a computation, it's not what happens is the output of that is something which you can use as a computation. It doesn't mean the computer is in itself a computer. But the word has got used in such a way now that we just, uh, just take this for granted. But it can be dangerous because then people think that the computer is the model for the human mind, and then they think they've somehow eliminated... Um, 
things like agency from the human mind because there's no agency inside the computer. But the right thing to say is, the re- just for the reason there's no agency there, there was no computing in there either. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think this, this has become so entrenched in the whole discipline that it's extremely confused and people uh, get very confused about it when they start talking about the brain in these information-theoretic terms and don't really realize quite what they're saying. Well, I think you've just um, given us a great example of where philosophy is still incredibly useful, indispensable, uh, well, by any I name. Think it's important just in conceptual clarity, as often been pointed out. We use these concepts. It's very easy to get confused in the use of concepts. And so philosophers can be useful and then actually made real discoveries about distinctions between concepts and being clear in the use of concepts. Now, when I, I look at the current state of science with regard to the study of consciousness, and it's attracted a lot of um, top people. Um, yeah. Francis Crick, the yeah. late Francis Crick, thought he would conquer the problem, yeah. though he's far better known for his co-discovery of uh, the structure of DNA. Uh, and there have been many, many others. But when it comes to this homunculus problem, uh, the, the problem of who exactly does all this neural activity represent something to? Who exactly mm. interprets all of that, mm. and how does meaning arise? I've seen nothing but a lot of real sort of hand-wavy things. I said, well, when, it, when the system's complex enough, yeah, when you have yeah. a certain set of relationships, that probably springs yeah. into existence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've never seen anything that could possibly oh, make that leap. It's complete hand-waving. That people will say, oh, it's, it's complexity. They will agree that the components themselves are not sufficient for consciousness. They'll see that as an individual neuron with an electrical impulse traveling down it is not sufficient for consciousness. But then they'll say, well, yes, but if you put lots of them together, yes, exactly. you will get it. Exactly. But why would that be so? Why, is, <laughs> why would they putting them together do it? Unless there's some global property we can specify that somehow explains the existence of consciousness, it doesn't, that doesn't help at all. Lurking behind this, too, of course, is the whole question of the self, what the self is. And that's a very puzzling thing, too. Of course, philosophers have thought about that a lot. So a lot of the, all this work on consciousness has been going on. People are ignoring the question of the self. Perhaps in 20 or 30 years, neuroscience will suddenly discover the self and start to worry about that. And the, only, the only way in which that seems to get any attention is, is this idea of the thing which integrates all the various activities of the brain. But that's a very poor idea of what the self might be, the thing which actually does perceive and think and mean and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. again, a completely unsolved problem, which we can't even formulate very well within current science. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's another complication that arises when you think about all the current information we have about the complexity of the, the unconscious or subconscious yeah. Uh, that seems to act just like a self, um, yep. that seems to do a lot of things that we used to think it took conscious thought to do. Yep. And if it can do all that, what's special about consciousness? Why do you even need consciousness? Another, another deep problem about consciousness, why did it evolve at all? Why, since you seem to be able to perform the functions of consciousness without consciousness, why is consciousness <laughs> so widespread in the, in the animal kingdom as it appears to be? Why didn't evolution just produce zombies everywhere? Certainly some organisms are zombies. Why aren't all the organisms zombies? Why is consciousness necessary for functional complexity? Completely unanswered question. Question uh, of biology, really, too. And you think it can answer it? I, I can't think of anything. I mean, the, the kind of thing that would answer it would be to try and show how if a brain gets to a certain level, its properties are necessarily produce consciousness. But that's exactly what we don't know about brains. We don't know any properties that they have. 
which is such that having those properties necessarily produces consciousness. Mm -hmm. It just seems like a complete accident that brains produce consciousness. Well, I was going to suggest that, um, and that it really isn't necessary at all. A good robot could do everything we do. Yeah, well, yeah, it seems so. But there's the question, though, the the good robot could do all those things, but could it do all those things and have the same brain that we have? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. more difficult. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but but even if we were inclined to say there that it couldn't, if it had the same brain, it would be conscious too. That doesn't mean we can explain consciousness in terms of the brain. Yes. We don't know what it is about the brain that produces consciousness. Just as I said earlier, we know what it is about the brain that produces electrical fields about it. We know what it is about the brain that produces muscular contractions. We understand all that, but we don't know anything about the brain which explains how it produces consciousness. And again, even if we could map information, quote-unquote, in the brain, the location of memories and things like that, the question of exactly how does that come to mean something to a, to an yeah. agent, to a conscious agent, yeah. is still left out of the equation. Still, still, left, still left open completely, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Colin, it's been great, and I think you acquitted your field quite well. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so we, can, uh, we can call it a science. I'm agreed. And the, and the science times can cover us. <laughs> Colin McGinn teaches philosophy, or should I say ontic science, at the University of Miami. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, signing off for now, but I'll be back next week, Sunday at noon, right here on KUSP. Our website is 7thAvenueProject.com. Avenue